Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong. I can change a diaper with one hand. That's the fact, Jack. And Joe Getty. Joey, baby. I love you, people. Armstrong and Getty. But I know this. They're loco. So it's a hustle. Yeah, it's a ah. And now, here's Armstrong and Getty. In the always exciting Bay Area, California. We'll start there. This is a story about drug overdoses, which has been so overshadowed by the Chinese bat fever. And it took a global pandemic to overshadow the drug crisis because it has reached, you got to be kidding, uh, proportions. And they're talking about the, I mean, the, the drug overdoses have killed so many more people in, in uh, San Francisco and the Bay Area than COVID. It's not even close. And they go through all sorts of insane statistics where there's already about 460 overdoses this year, um, just under last year, which was a crazy record uh, by the end of the year. Um, the peak came in January of this year when 76 people died, 76, and 70 of them had fentanyl in their system. Um, it's still bad. And, and then they get, of course, in the San Francisco Chronicle into what's causing this. And, and they hit some of the usual suspects like, uh, income inequality, housing shortages, and systemic racism as they continue to double and triple down on policies that make it as easy, convenient, and comfortable as possible to be a drug addict. And then they're shocked when people become drug addicts or stay drug addicts and and uh, eventually overdose. And they're spending millions and millions of dollars on it, and they still have people just dropping like flies. So you have that. Exhibit number two. The DEA is warning about fentanyl and meth-laced mm. pills. I saw that. Flooding across the country. We had more than 93,000 overdose deaths last year wow. nationally. Over 93,000, which is an increase of almost 30% from the previous year. Right. So you got murders and drug overdoses up 30%. Good friend of our family. Her daughter overdosed, died. Oh. It's so sad because yeah. the people think they know what they're getting. And the, the public safety alert is about these counterfeit pills often sold on social media or e-commerce sites, uh, increasingly contain fentanyl, sometimes methamphetamine. And so people don't know what they're taking. Okay, slow down. There's the part where I'm getting confused. This okay. part. Who's getting these pills? How? Like, am I at any risk if I'm just going to my CVS and get my medicine that way? Or where are people getting their pills that, that are with have fentanyl in them? Wherever illegal drugs are sold. So it's an, it's an, a, a, they're trying to get stuff illegally. Right, exactly. It's, yeah, it's, you have an oxycodone habit and you buy it from okay, a dealer. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So they're not sneaking fentanyl stuff into the, uh, Walgreens. Right. Okay. Indeed. So as yeah. long as I'm going to a actual pharmacist. Yeah. At first, uh, the drug abuse and the deaths centered around prescription pain kills as Big Pharma farmed out some of the most dangerous stuff ever seen on a pharmacy shelf and claimed it was fine. Never forget. In recent years, the death toll has risen sharply in part, uh, fueled in large part by fentanyl, which we've all heard about, which is uh, absolutely incredible. So, you know, if you or a, f- a loved one has a habit, you know, we're rooting for you to get clean. Um, it's twice as dangerous. It may be 50 times more dangerous to have a pill habit than it was three years ago, five years ago. Yeah. Just keep it in mind. Maybe that'll help motivate you. And our final... Well, it was very deadly to be a uh, an addict of any of these things when it was where you were getting the pure stuff. And it oh, killed yeah. people like crazy. 
Oh, yeah, it's way more dangerous than car crashes now. Way, way, way more dangerous. And the final drug note, uh, two fine folks, Andre Jesus Morales and Christine Ponce, were arrested in Southern California, according to the Riverside District Attorney's Office. They were charged in a massive drug bust that resulted in authorities seizing more than 46 pounds of an extremely lethal synthetic opioid. You've heard of fentanyl. Do you know carfentanyl? It's actually spelled differently, oddly enough. No. 46 pounds of this stuff, not to mention some coke and some heroin, but they say the drug is 10,000 times more potent than morphine, 100 times more potent than fentanyl. It's typically used to tranquilize elephants. And Wow. <laughs> now, keep, keep in mind now. Alex mil- in the newsroom, can you look up the average weight of an elephant for me? Sure can. It would be very helpful to know. 12,000 pounds. Really? Off the top of your head? It's something like that. African elephants, 12,000. Mm-hmm. We'll uh, Indian elephants, somewhat smaller. We'll see how close you are. That was uh, like... Well, do you want African, Asian? Which one African are 12 to 15,000 pounds on average. Asian, more like 8 to uh, 11. Okay, so, Alex. Somebody get this man a cupcake. 13,000 of African bush elephant, Asian elephant, 8,800. Joe has always been really good at guessing the weights of zoo animals. <laughs> uh Elephants should not be in zoos, Jack. Um, I, I was super into elephants as a kid. Still am. I wrote a paper about prehistoric elephants in fifth grade. Ask him about his full-size back elephant tattoo. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, when I told my kids a couple weeks ago that there's a company, a company in England serious about bringing back the woolly mammoth that's like the only thing my nine-year-old can talk about when he's in the bathtub let's talk some more about the woolly mammoth do you think it will i mean just every night <laughs> oh that's beautiful that that they discovered uh, the new dinosaur they discovered over the weekend the monkey dactyl have you heard about this oh look out um uh, a pterodactyl that's part it's got like a head of a monkey and opposable thumbs it's the oldest beast with opposable thumbs that they've ever discovered a monkey dactyl wow <laughs> they got to bring that back to life that sounds like something Dr. Frankenstein would sew together. <laughs> I, That's crazy. Uh, so the, po- the reason we had started to, you have a job. Anyway, well, if, <laughs> if you, if your boys want to form, uh, I'll, I'll form a woolly mammoth enthusiast club and they can be in it. But anyway. The fact that you've got a full elephant back tattoo is just fantastic. The reason. Yeah, absolutely. And he's wearing Ray-Bans. People are taking drugs that are designed to put an elephant down. Yes. That should exactly. help you get over your day's problems. So so listen to this math here. Two milligrams of fentanyl is enough to kill someone. Two milligrams. And this stuff is 100 times more potent than fentanyl. Oh. And they had 46 pounds of it, enough to kill more than 50 million people. So the goal of a drug dealer is not to kill their clients. That's a terrible business model. Exactly. You don't make it works for McDonald's. (laughs) Um, You don't. (laughs) Hey, I'm attorneys, you idiot. (laughs) You don't make any money off of a dead drug addict as a drug dealer. So there's no upside from that standpoint. That's why I'm always just so. Where did I first hear this story? Was it 60 Minutes? Who did the story originally about China making fentanyl and getting into the United States to kill us off because they believe we're such a decadent, drug-addicted society? Here's a chance to kill off hundreds of thousands or millions of Americans. Is that what's going on? Because like I said, the drug dealers, there's no advantage to them. Well, I think the Chinese are absolutely enthusiastic about that goal. I think that from the point of view of the drug dealers is you have an, an input, an ingredient. 
and it's much, much denser, more, more powerful. So you have to ship much less of it. It's just much more convenient. And then you have to, uh, actually formulate your pills. But the problem is the, the most infinitesimal mistake in this kills people. And it's killing 90,000 people a year in this country. So they're just, they're not that good at it. Well, that sounds like the margin for error. Your quality control would have to be really, really high. Right, right. But again, I mean, if you're trying to make, uh, you know, 10,000 pills to get people high, uh, you need one one hundredth of the amount of car fentanyl as you do even fentanyl, which is just mind-bogglingly powerful. So, again, it's a question of convenience. So I've never been a drug guy for whatever reason. I just really, really liked booze. I mean, just so much. I it's good just, to have a hobby. You know, the, the, the things would come out at parties, and I was perfectly fine sitting in the corner with my booze. I'll drink all your booze while you do whatever that is because I want all the booze. But um, <laughs> but so now if you're sitting around a, a party and people start to bring stuff out, there might be something there that's going to kill somebody instantly. Absolutely. Which is why every city in the country is distributing Narcan to whoever wants it. That's that nasal spray that will revive you from an overdose. Um, yeah, it's, it's a horrific problem. Like I said, only the Chinese bat fever could overshadow this story. You know, it's an enormous story. It's a, it's a, it's a public health just catastrophe. That's interesting. And this is the age of hyperbole. That's not a hyperbole. Hmm. Don't do drugs, kids. Armstrong and Getty. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. But resist, we must. The Armstrong and Getty Show. We brought up the concept of restless anal syndrome. Uh, That's because Japanese researchers have tied that to COVID-19 for the first time. I had never heard of restless anal syndrome. You have heard of restless leg syndrome? Turns out it's a restless leg syndrome variant. It just traveled up. It just climbs up a little bit. It just climbed up your legs to your (laughs) anus. And it's uh, got the same features of restless leg syndrome, the urge to move. Shake your butt to the music, man. Shake it, shake it. It's kind of the same sort of thing. I'm trying to sleep. Urge to move, worsening with rest, improvement with exercise, gets worse in the evening. So, uh, yeah, it's like restless leg syndrome. It's only your anus, and it can happen with uh, with the COVID. You hope it doesn't. I th- I was kind of concerned I had restless leg syndrome recently. I mean, it was I was not being able to sleep, and my legs were all over the place, and then I stopped drinking coffee afternoon, and it went away. So Interesting. That's what cured it for me. It's worth mentioning that the restless leg syndrome or, you know, uneasy anus syndrome is uh, it's a neurological uh, phenomenon it, it has nothing to do with your uh, cloaca itself to cite the biological term for frogs maybe your um, anus is just like bored keep it active keep it interested maybe it just doesn't feel like it's reached its potential in life and that restlessness is a positive it's not ready for bed but, yeah, it's a neurological thing. One of the many uh, mysterious and troubling uh, symptoms of the Chinese bat fever. I don't know. They've only got one case of it with some old guy, but uh, if you get the COVID, keep on the lookout for it. One case? <laughs> I didn't realize that. <laughs> Maybe this guy just likes attention. Yeah, Doc, I... Uh... I can't smell, I can't taste, uh, some of my hair fell out, uh, my elbow hurts, uh, let me see, my knee is stiff, my anus is restless. Wait a minute, what was that last thing you said? <laughs> I said, uh, my knee hurts. No, the other one, about your anus. It's restless. 
Oh, is that, the, is that something? Is that special, Doc? Oh, very rare. It's feeling unfulfilled, <laughs> like it hasn't reached its potential. <laughs> oh, beautiful. So we got quite a few texts, as you would expect, over the story out of Japan, where scientists have found that COVID can cause restless anal syndrome. Many of the texts are unreadable and uh, mm. pass, but uh, we got... Disappointing and surprising. It's basically restless leg syndrome that has traveled northward. Um from a uh, medical standpoint. We got this text. I have restless leg syndrome. It's not just wiggling legs. It's very painful, like being tased. It would be a nightmare in the anus, Mm. which is the name of my new band, Nightmare in the Anus. I'm not going to see you. We rock hard. Yeah, I'll bet you do. Uh, But yeah, so I hope you don't get that. If there's one thing I can wish you all today, I hope none of you get restless. Okay. All right. What's a scientific? Oh, you want to ignore science? <laughs> We're going to follow the science right to your back door, as it turns out. Uh, Americans check their smartphones 96 times a day. Yeah, I feel like that's a low number. Um, new research shows the U.S. is deep into the digital age with data showing Americans check their phones 96 times a day. It's once every 10 minutes, according to a company that measures this sort of thing. Yeah, I, I read this study, and my favorite part is that virtually everybody's offended when somebody looks at their smartphone during a conversation, and virtually everybody does it themselves. Yeah. Will we all just get used to that? Will we stop doing it or get used to it? It's just weird that, like, three-quarters of people are hurt by it, but a majority of people do it themselves. Roughly 50% of Americans are attempting to use their phone less, which I think is the definition of an addiction. If you're trying to do something less and you can't, uh, it showed that. And the reason I brought this up is this. Uh, it showed that 18 to 24-year-olds check their phones twice as much as the national average. Okay, that's the group that has grown up with this. This My brain is different than it was before smartphones were invented. And I was a full-on grown-ass man <laughs> when the smartphone uh, came around, and it still changed my brain. I can't imagine if I had started with this thing when I was uh, you know, 12 years old or whatever. Yesterday, I'm on a major university college campus because it's a shortcut to downtown for my boy and I. We were riding our bikes someplace to get a milkshake. So we're riding through the college campus, and um, school has started, and we happen to be going through it like 3 o'clock, which apparently for classes is like, Five o'clock on the freeway if you're a driver. I mean, because there were just bikes, tire to tire, thousands and thousands of bikes and people walking everywhere. And every single person walking, not every single person, but I'd say a good 80% of people walking and probably 10% of the bike riders were staring at their phone. And I just thought, that's probably the first time I've walked across a college campus when there's a bunch of people walking across it also since I was in college. Ain't nobody staring at a phone when I was in college, obviously, pre-internet. Um, but w- w- what things aren't happening that were happening? And I'm not 100% convinced it's a bad thing that people are staring at the phones, but, man, you're not noticing the sky, the birds, the trees, the weather, the buildings, the other people. The cute You're, girl who walked out of the class with you, in the case of hetero males. Not to mention just being alone with your thoughts, which actually is scientifically proven. That is fairly important to the way the brain works. All of those people that instead of walking for 10 minutes back to their dorm or wherever they're headed, where your mind would just wander about the day or what you just learned in class or the fight you had with your girlfriend last night or whatever it is. Nope. None of that happening anymore. 
Well, I was just going to say, neurologically speaking, when you're walking away from a class where you have theoretically been taught some stuff, your brain theoretically. is absolutely uh, filing that stuff away, categorizing it, processing it, committing it to memory, etc. I, you know, I, that's the rhythm of life, I think. And I just I think we're losing that with the smartphones. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I always hesitate with this stuff because they said it when radio was invented. They said it when, when TV was invented. And they were right. <laughs> As Bill Maher said the other night on his show, he said, that's a stupid argument. We can all feel that this is different than TV or radio or anything else. I would agree. And he's right. You can feel that it's different. Because you know when you're doing it yourself, it's got a different category of absorbing your attention than anything else. But all those college students staring at their phone rather than just walking along. Yeah, it's interesting. The the, the beast. And then it comes time for the exam. They don't even remember being taught about restless, restless anal syndrome or anus syndrome. How do you have time to think about how triggered you were in your science class or how exactly. oppressed you are by the something on the campus or something? It's a good point. You work up your anger about a speaker that's coming to give a speech this Friday night. I mean, how, Remember how, you... how much you hate white people. <laughs> how do you even fit that into your day when you're staring at your smartphone? Right. Armstrong and Getty. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. I forewarned you. Let's go, Brandon. The Armstrong and Getty Show. New York Times did a big piece describing how not only are the prices of various healthcare procedures wildly different from facility to facility, from area to area, region to region, but they're wildly different at the same facility, depending on what sort of insurance plan you have or if you don't have insurance. And Craig Gottwals, Craig, the healthcare guru, joins us. He's an attorney, law benefit consultant, uh, and, uh, and, and knows more about this stuff than about anybody. Hey, Craig, how are you? I'm well. How are you, gentlemen? Uh, good. Uh, so Joe's going to ask all the questions. I'm taking a uh, home COVID test while Joe asks the questions. <laughs> At one-fifth of the cost of what it would take cost you to do that COVID test uh, with a nurse. Ex- exactly. So I'm about to stick the swab in my nose and then to stick it into the liquid, and I'll know in 15 minutes if I have COVID or not. So while you're talking this is about, exciting. While you're talking about Man, I wish, I wish, I wish y'all still had the live cast, because I would really like to watch that. That'd be good times. I'm going to jam this thing way up in my nose, too. I want to get this right. <laughs> yeah, I'll, you can get it. I'll listen when, to your when interview. It, when with... it pushes back, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's when you know you're right at the sweet spot. Yeah. All right, so Craig, you as the most organized human being I've ever met have sent us a, uh, a kind of a prep sheet, a fact sheet, why costs are all over the map. They are. They're just nuts. Where do you start? Well, yeah, the the, uh, the New York Times did a pretty good job of cataloging some, some nice uh, examples of it. And, you know, this kudos to the Armstrong and Getty show. Um, we talked about this two years ago, gents. I mean, we, when, when Trump first floated the idea of these regulations, uh, we were on the air saying, this is a fantastic idea. It's not a silver bullet, uh, but it's a great first step. We need to have transparency in these prices to give the market any chance at all to fight back against the, the bureaucratic oligopoly we have now. Um, so a couple foundational facts, because you, you cannot look at this topic without reiterating some of the basics with healthcare right now. In blue states, taxpayers pay 70% of all health care costs. 
In red states, it's 65%. You're looking at roughly two-thirds of all health care costs nationwide are funded by taxpayers. Healthcare costs us 18% of our GDP, which is $4 trillion a year. That works out to $11,600 per person, not per family, okay? U.S. debt, we, we always hear about U.S. debt being $28.5, $29 trillion. Fine, that's the low number. But when you add in the real U.S. debt, when you add in the unfunded liability of Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, so again, primarily insurance company functions, we owe $465,000 per citizen. Again, not per family, not per taxpayer, right? So we have a huge problem. The very single largest problem facing our country, um, as sad as what's going on in Afghanistan, is not that. It's not terrorism. It's this. It's the cost of health care. It's the cost of insurance, and it's our budget. Why is it so With screwed up? Who, who, who are the major players? Uh, who are we looking at? Okay, so... <laughs> Skipping around here a bit, we've got we've got what I would call an oligopoly, which is we have four major providers of health insurance across the country. It's they're commonly referred to as BUCA, which stands for the Blues, United Healthcare, Cigna, and Aetna. Uh, the New York Times article throws in Humana, but they're rather small in the grand scheme of things on medical care. So you've got these giant insurance companies in bed with the federal government. They they, they work hand in hand to write Obamacare. You also have the pharmaceutical industry, and then last, but and, and probably least, frankly, is large hospital chains. The individual medical practitioners, small doctor groups and individual doctors are not the problem. It's the bureaucracy and the inefficient market that we've created working together that are the problem, okay? Skipping ahead to why has it boiled to a head so badly now? I mean, this has been a growing problem for 40 years but Obamacare did one thing that was rather draconian and bad in 2009. Obamacare put in a price control on insurance companies. Again, no good deed goes unpunished. This wasn't done with bad intentions. But what Obamacare did was it said, hey, insurance companies, we don't want you price gouging. So what we're going to say is that you're only allowed to mark up your prices 15% more than the claims you pay. It's called a medical loss ratio. So what that what that did was to say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna limit the profitability of insurance companies. And again, a lot of people on the surface thought that was a good idea. Well, in practice, a decade later, what we see is it's been a horrible practice. It's exacerbated the problem because now for insurance companies to increase profitability, they have to increase claims. So where the negotiation used to be between a large hospital chain and insurance company, the insurance company was always trying to keep claims as low as possible. Now, insurance companies have a reduced incentive to, to lower claim cost. So if, for example, if an MRI goes from 1000 to 4000 well, the insurance company gets to keep, as a profit margin, 15% of 4000 as opposed to 15% of 1000 And because there are so few players, the consumer really can't say, screw you, you suck, you're, you're overcharging, we're overpaying, I'm going with a, a company B. That's exactly right. It's become increasingly difficult because, like I said, We've got hospital chains that are gobbling up small hospitals. So we have a, a handful of very large hospital chains nationwide, four large insurance companies, and a federal government. And they all, as, as we've talked about going back to the book This Town, they all trade executives over the years, and they're all in the same muck together. The, the whole thing, um, by the way, I did my nasal swab, and I'm waiting now my 15 minutes for the result of my COVID test. So. 
Um, the whole thing with the medical care. So I've sp- I spent 24 hours in the emergency room two days ago. I've talked about that. Then at another medical facility. At no point in this process, at, at any point, has the idea of what this costs come up ever. I mean, no. no so that, that that's that's just the way the whole thing works. There's there's all these numbers moving around and prices moving around somewhere in a computer with somebody between the hospitals, insurance companies, whatever. But I haven't seen a single price at any point. We, that's just where we are. And it's been that way for... No, and this, it's forever, basically, yeah. in our lives. Yeah. And the system is set up, Jack, so that you don't see the price. Because, again, the fundamental problem, coming back, repeating something we've talked about on this show before, the, the largest purchaser of health care is now the federal government. The largest federal government program purchasing health care is Medicare. In order to keep Medicare from completely tanking our budget, I mean, some would argue that uh, 465,000 per citizen, our budget's already tanked. But you know, let's 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 just play this game for a bit and say, what can we do to keep Medicare from you know the Bernie Sanders 30 trillion dollar plan from taking over? Well, what Medicare does is they artificially suppress what they reimburse for healthcare. So Medicare, healthcare is inflating at three to six, three to four percent every single year. Okay. But the, the federal government only increases what it reimburses for health care 1% every year. Well, that puts added pressure on the hospital chains to negotiate higher reimbursements with the insurance lobby. And now with the Obamacare mandates in place, the insurance lobby says, yeah, bigger claims means more profit for us. Okay. So these prices get spun out of control. And that's why you see things like paying 10 times the cost of an MRI if you're in private insurance versus Medicare. Now, on at that and says, see, Medicare is doing a better job at negotiating prices, but they're not negotiating at all. They're just saying, if you want to play with the federal government, which is, by the way, the dominant monopoly in healthcare now, this is what you'll take. And you'll you'll make up the difference on the backs of those 30% of people that are paying for their own healthcare. This is the problem. And this problem is not going to get better unless we have dramatic changes. This law was a good first step. But as if you've read the article, you know, the law has problems and we need we need more. You know. So presumably, then, if that 30% of us who are paying for our own health care with the uh, aid of our beloved uh, corporate fathers, um, if, if we went away, if it becomes all government health care, that enormous subsidy that keeps health care excellent to the goes extent away. that it is goes away. So we end up with away. crappy, crappy DMV style medicine. Right. So I look, I pulled this stat just a few moments ago and knowing that our knowing that our conversation would end here. So you, you, you guys typically will ask me, um, why does a doctor take Medicare then? And the answer is because the, the federal government's the largest buyer of health care. And so without putting a huge dent in their business, they really have to do that. Plus, the Hippocratic Oath is do no harm and they feel a moral obligation to do so. But now it's we're to the point where roughly only 75 percent of doctors will accept a new Medicare patient. But it's only 55% of new doctors that will accept the Medicaid patient. Medicaid is for the low income, of which one in three babies are born on Medicaid now. One out of three babies are born on Medicaid. That's a stunning statistic. And when when Medicaid was created in the late 60s, it was only designed to cover the lowest 2% of the population. Now one out of three babies are born on it. And here's the now 55% of doctors will accept Medicaid. So we're getting into a crisis, right, where we don't have enough doctors that'll take this low cost. Here's the stat that really blew my mind. 38% of mental health experts in Medicaid will take a new patient, Jack. Wow. 
this this is a problem, right? You you've talked about this on the air as well. This is this is the problem we're seeing for kids with mental health anymore. When one out of three kids are born into a system where only one out of three doctors will take a new patient, this is this is where we're seeing that this is the iceberg tip of the crisis. And meanwhile, the government policies related to COVID have caused a crisis in child mental health. Uh, so uh, Craig Gottwals, Craig, the healthcare guru, is on the line. Uh, before we uh, drive people to take up arms, um, what should we be advocating for? I know price transparency is a great first step. Uh, what else? Is there another yes. big one people yes. should be writing letters and shouting about? Well, before we leave price, price transparency, I do want to say that this is, you know, there is a, a, a slight ray of hope here, right? This was a Trump and the New York Times did a really good job of burying the fact that because they because the New York Times likes this new regulation and, and they did a great job of burying the fact that it was Trump's idea. It's a Trump idea that they go on and they do say on like page six in the article that the Biden administration supports. So. This law is good. As you know, most hospitals are simply ignoring the law because the maximum penalty is only $110,000 a year per hospital. These hospital chains make $5 billion a year. So having it be $100,000 a year is ridiculous, and that's why 80% of hospitals are ignoring this transparency rule. But they are going to try and increase the fine to $2 million next year. So it, 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 the first step is, is talk to your congressman, send a letter saying, we support transparency, increase the penalties, make the, make this data more readily available. So that's step one. Step two, for large employers, this is employers with, say, more than 300 employees, we've got to move to what's called a reference-based pricing system. Cut insurance companies out, self-fund your plan, and don't use a network at all. Just go direct. You insure your employees, and we will directly negotiate those reimbursements with the providers. There is a system to do that. Some employers are starting to. It is one way to break up this bureaucratic oligopoly. Wow. Okay, Craig Gottwald's the healthcare guru. Armstrong and Getty. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. Point of personal privilege. Don't get brazen with me. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Bill Maher's an interesting cat. He's a liberal and a progressive that uh, he and I agree on nothing in terms of just overall philosophy of uh, governing and human beings and safety net and that sort of stuff. But as uh, an old school liberal, he um, he uh, he's in, in line with us a lot. But this is well, we'll just play it for you. Here's how it goes. And finally, new rule. Don't spin me when it comes to my health. Over the past year, the COVID pandemic has prompted the medical establishment, the media, and the government to take a scared straight approach to getting the public to comply with their recommendations. Well, I'm from a different school. Give it to me straight, Doc. (laughs) Because in the long run, that always works better than you can't handle the truth. Now, I get it. Doctors tell people lies because they don't trust you to finish the antibiotics and media. Well, I think we all know if it bleeds, it leads. Researchers at Dartmouth built a database recently monitoring the COVID coverage of the major news outlets across the world and found that while other countries mix the good news in with the bad, the U.S. national media reported almost 90% bad news. Even as things were getting better, the reporting remained negative. So how how amazing is that? Mm. So that's unique to our U.S. media from the way they do it in uh, Europe? That's uh, I find that interesting. Why, we could probably talk for the next two hours on why that is and what it means. Uh, we won't, 
Is but it because that's a we head scratcher? Are we just ahead of the world in clickonomics because it all was invented here and that Europe is headed that direction? I don't actually know. Are they smarter than us? I don't. I you know. I tend to I don't doubt know. That. Smaller countries, more cohesive, where you're more likely to know the news anchor and tell them, "Hey, we don't appreciate the propaganda." I don't know. But the idea that they would mix more of the good news with the bad news as opposed to just only bad news, right? It's troubling. Anyway, back to Bill. Even as things were getting better, the reporting remained negative. And politicians, they lie because it's their nature to cover their ass so they don't get blamed if things goes badly. And also to keep in practice. When all of our sources for medical information have an agenda to spin us, yeah, you wind up with a badly misinformed population, including on the left. Liberals often mock the Republican misinformation bubble. But what about liberals? You know, the high information by the science people? In a recent Gallup survey, Democrats did much worse than Republicans in getting the right answer to the fundamental question, what are the chances that someone who gets COVID will need to be hospitalized? The answer is between 1 and 5%. 41% of Democrats thought it was over 50%. Another 28% put the chances at 20 to 49. So almost 70% of Democrats are wildly off on this key question, and also have a greatly exaggerated view of the danger of COVID-2 and the mortality rate among children. All of which explains why today the states with the highest share of schools that are still closed are all blue states. So if the right-wing media bubble has to own things like climate change denial, shouldn't liberal media have to answer for how did your audience wind up believing such a bunch of crap about COVID? I, yeah, I would agree. Well, and, and because I'm a middle child and I seek to bring people together, I'll point out that what do you expect of people if that's all they hear? They, sure. tune, to, they tune in or, or, or click on what used to be a respected source of news, not suspecting that they've become a, just an utterly shameless uh, clickbait factory. Well, feeding them misinformation, you gotta, you can't hate people for that. Well, similar to if you only heard one story of the election was stolen, uh, narrative. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you, you wouldn't have heard any of the other stuff. Um, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what fixes this. I don't know how it gets better, but you, you can see it's a pretty big problem. Schools being closed is a big problem. And if it's because most people on the left think you're, <laughs> 10 to 50 times more likely to end up in the hospital or die from COVID than is true? That's right. a problem. And the perception is even less accurate when it comes to kids. We've gone over that. Let's let the little man with the big brain uh, finish his screed, then we'll have more comments. Here's what I'm saying. I don't want politics mixed in with my medical decisions. And now that everything is politics, that's all we do. If their side says COVID is nothing, our side has to say it's everything. Trump said it would go away like a miracle. And we said it was World War Z. If you lie to people, even for a very good cause, you lose their trust. I think a lot of people died because of Trump's incompetence. And I think a lot of people died because talking about obesity had become a third rail in America. A stunning statistic was reported. 78% of those hospitalized, ventilated, or dead from COVID have been overweight. It is the key piece of the puzzle 
by far the most pertinent factor, but you dare not speak its name. If the media and the doctors had made a point to keep saying, but there's something you can do, but we'll never know because they never did. Because the last thing you want to do is say something insensitive. We would literally rather die. Yeah, that's, uh, I don't know if it's the key, but it's certainly a key. Well, 70, what did he say? 78% yeah. of people who died yeah. were yeah. obese. Yeah. Being or, or old, s- significantly over, overweight. Being yeah. old and obese is a, a bad, bad place to be. But, but he's absolutely right. That's something nobody's ever going to say out loud. Yeah. Yeah. That's fat shaming. Yeah, we're, man, we're, this is an odd moment in America. Or maybe it's just we're more aware of it. Maybe most of America has been fairly delusional through our whole history. No, no, you just didn't no way. know it. No way. Can't be. You don't think? Can't be. Certainly where you, certainly not where you had two different sides like this completely living in different worlds. Well, and as he makes the point, now that politics is everything, everything is about politics. It used to be. I mean, there'd be no motivation for the newspapers and networks of old to whip up disease fear or to tamp it down, for that matter, for political reasons. They would have thought that was a ludicrous thing to even suggest. But it's, it's our reality now. What strange times. Armstrong and Getty.